0: Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double Edge double bill. This week, Viola Davis is extremely loud and incredibly close to the Widows. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I just uh, fooled a couple people into giving me some guns, and I'm eating a hot dog in celebration.
1: And I am Adam Thomas, and Max von Sydow is very clearly my grandfather right away.
0: What?
1: Uh, Big twist.
0: Ooh, what a twist. Oh my god, I'm so... So surprised. And spoilers out there for all you people who were just dying to see one of the two movies today. (laughs) The one that has Max von Sydow. I'm sorry, Widow spoilers, everybody.
1: Yeah, sorry, guys. Yeah, it's actually Max von Sydow wearing a Liam Neeson mask.
0: Uh, (laughs) The biggest of all twists. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to the double Edge* Double Bill, where uh, every week Adam and I talk about a good and a bad feature we picked at the end of a previous episode. And, uh, you know, this week, uh, in honor of The Woman King is coming out, we decided to devote... Um, an episode to uh, an underrated actress, I would say, even though she's gotten an Academy Award and she's gotten plenty of critical acclaim, but still, you know, deserves more praise even than she's gotten currently Miss Viola Davis, who stars in The Woman King.
1: Yeah, Viola Davis is the fucking shit, dude. I've always liked Viola Davis, you know, and it started with me, honestly, is, you know, and I'm sure it's no shocker to anybody, but her fucking voice, her speaking voice is one of the most like silky smooth voices in the world.
0: Yeah, and I would assume you might have, and maybe some other people might have heard her originally in, say, some like uh, Ocean's Eleven. She's one of the early voices you hear. She's interrogating Danny Ocean at the beginning.
1: Yep, I actually just found that out, honestly, but yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, and she's one of those people who are definitely like, it's we're going to be talking about one of her movies that's like actually her being a, a, the star in Mini Linear mm-hmm. Ensemble cast. But she was usually sort of cast in traditional, like character actress kind of roles, tend to be kind of like, you know, authority figures or sort of like hard asses, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's, it's a bummer because I think she has like such an interesting screen presence that she could be the lead of more movies. And I think, you know, part of it is just what Hollywood does in general with black women as actresses. But even there's the other element that we don't often talk about because we're two white dudes, but the colorism element, where like most women of color who get lead parts tend to be those with lighter skin supposed to to Viola Davis.
1: Yeah, she has. Vi- she's very, very dark skinned. Um, yeah, but that's I mean, unfortunately, a hundred percent true, and you know, it's been that way for oh, I don't know, ever. And uh, it's it's really a shame because you do have these great actresses out there who are darker toned that just really don't get the chance they deserve. I mean, and you got to figure there's two of them in this movie alone in Widows. I mean, with Viola Davis and Cynthia Erivo. I mean, they're both dark skin and they're both fantastic they don't get the breaks man it, it's
0: fucking ridiculous i mean even when say cynthia Erivo is gonna be getting a break now in terms of being a star of a big movie it's gonna be in wicked or she'll be green
1: yeah yeah i mean
0: doesn't mean it's gonna be a big movie i hope but well they're they're making two of them they're somehow splitting that musical up into two movies so it's oh, be- god <laughs> sakes i didn't know that what the fuck <laughs> No, even as someone who has seen and likes that musical, I don't get how you break that up into two movies, for the record. It's a very compact story. <laughs> Honestly, that could fit one movie.
1: And for someone who's never seen the musical and doesn't want to, I do not need two of them.
0: But anyway, anyway, so Miss Viola Davis, uh, we are devoting episode to her, and we picked two interesting movies at the end of uh, the previous episode where we were doing our picking. Uh, we'll be talking about first Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which <sighs> uh, was your bad pick. and Oh, God. <laughs> Unfortunately, fits more of like the average role that she would get. I would say, yeah, like supporting, like part of the ensemble. And then I'll be talking about my good pick, Widows, which was the one where I referenced. For even though it's a big ensemble, she's still the lead character. I would argue.
1: Yeah, no, she definitely is. I'd say her than uh, Elizabeth Dubecki but yeah, for sure Viola Davis.
0: But uh, let's go ahead and get into first her bad feature. Let's rip off that Band Aid him with <sighs> extremely loud and incredibly close.
1: My dad said the way I saw the world was a gift that I was different than everyone else. A great game we'd play was Reconnaissance Expedition. He told me to bring back something from every decade in the 20th century. I found something from every decade. Already? (laughs) You rock. I found this key in my dad's closet. How can I find the lock that it fits? What's it got to do with my dad? I told you I didn't know anything about your father. Finding
0: what this key fits would be a miracle. I'm right here if you need me. So Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close came out on Christmas Day, 2011, from uh, director Stephen Daldry, and uh, was written by Eric Roth based on the novel by Jonathan Sarfin. And uh, this was a movie that you picked, Adam, and we both kind of, like, were you know brainstorming about potential bad picks for you and we both ended up with this one i think as a potential choice because this is a movie i only knew because come oscar time of like that oscar season of, for 2011 it randomly got a best picture and best supporting actor nomination despite not really getting a lot of the precursors and everyone was like what the fuck is this movie and i was always fascinated by it but i never saw it and uh now we've both seen it adam and uh aren't you glad about the decisions we make
1: <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> no, this is one of the this is one of the fucking just such a pandering bullshit movie. I mean, it's it's awful. It's fucking awful.
0: Well, why don't you uh, maybe enlighten some people who might not be aware of what this movie is and what what's the the basic plot synopsis for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close*?
1: All right, uh, this kid who won Jeopardy uh, <laughs> <laughs> has Tom Hanks as his dad, and Tom Hanks dies in nine eleven. And they used to go, like, solve the puzzles together, and he finds this key after his dad dies. And uh, the whole movie is him trying to find what lock this key opens up. And, uh, yeah, and that's about as interesting as it gets, because the rest of it, like I said, is just emotionally pandering bullshit.
0: Yeah, in case you can tell from nine eleven being a huge factor in this movie. Um, which, this was around, like, obviously 2011. This is about the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 happening. And I remember, like, obviously we had 9-11 movies before this, like, you know, um, um, United 93, or Remember Me, everyone's favorite. Yeah, everyone's
1: favorite. (laughs) Was it Rain Over Me also? Rain
0: Over, yes, right, yes, the the Adam Sandler film. Um, And, uh, yeah, this is one of the more, I guess, sort of, like, infamous, like, big prestige examples of that um in which like you mentioned like it, it's so focused on like thomas horn who is our main kid who like you mentioned he was a winner on jeopardy kids week uh back in 2010 which naturally makes him such a great actor right
1: oh yeah see so, i mean, you're like oh that's our guy and you know i i do want to say for a first time actor like this is his first thing he's he's bad like he's he's not good but he's not the worst kid actor I've seen. I mean, there are some kid actors who have been doing it way longer than him or are not even as good as this kid. And again, he's not good. But you would expect, honestly, way worse out of a first-time kid actor.
0: Well, and not to mention that with any kind of child performance, it's usually not fair to blame the child necessarily as much as, say, the director true uh but at the same time yeah like he is like on this quest to find out what exactly this key is and a thing we didn't kind of mention in the movie doesn't explicitly say it but he's heavily implied to be on the autism spectrum
1: yeah they say it at one point like he tested for asperger's and then it kind of just goes away like they don't really bring it up again but uh yeah i I think that's kind of the idea here
0: Right, because he does a lot of, like, you know, the typical things where he's like, oh, he'll cover his ears whenever something uh, horrible is being said, or he'll be so focused on logic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> logic. Oh oh, there's too much logic in this movie.
0: Right, right, but that's his, like, whole thing. It's just like, what, what's the logic of, you know, my dad dying in nine eleven? where, like, a guy uh, flew a plane into a building and killed a bunch of people he doesn't know or whatever. It, it's a lot of that, and I think the trouble is when especially he is so ca- – has to carry this movie – It's like such a a lot to put in his shoulders, especially when the only support he gets is like some flashbacks with Tom Hanks, who plays his dad. Um, Occasionally, Sandra Bullock, we didn't even mention that plot synopsis because that's how much the movie really cares.
1: Yeah, she doesn't matter. She doesn't matter until the last five minutes, and then it's bullshit.
0: Right, and then Max von Sydow, um, who got the Best Supporting Actor nomination, who we love, Max von Sydow.
1: I, I love Max von Sydow, but, right. but... But what? <laughs> Why'd he get a nomination for this? He right. doesn't have a single fucking line.
0: I mean, it feels like it's such a, like, old man nomination, because this was, you know, he uh-uh. died, a co- like, a couple years ago, so this feels like, oh, you know, we can potentially give him this nomination. Especially when he's playing this guy who is specifically mute, does not communicate by talking at all, and has a little notepad that he scribbles stuff into Don't
1: forget about his sick ass hand tats.
0: Right. Of course. Yes. We says yes or no by raising either left or right hand. And like the problem is especially like Max Vincio could be great against this kid, but one he doesn't come in until about halfway through the movie, and then when he does, he obviously isn't speaking. So so much of the scenes is just this kid having to play off of literally just words that Max Vincio holds up.
1: Oh God, I know. And he's in it for twenty minutes too. I mean, at yeah. best.
0: He's not in a very long, no. Because he bails after a certain point.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. And then it's like the most promising idea of this. Obviously, the aforementioned key the kid finds is an envelope with the word black written on it. So he assumes it's somebody's last name. Which, of course, it actually is. Which is insane to me. With a, you know, ink, But... The best part of this movie could have been him going to meet all these different blacks and having it be a bunch of different character actors more than you actually get, and kind of delving into their lives and what's happened to them post 9-11 and things like that, instead of just focusing on this whiny kid.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's the big problem, It's just that, like, I, I agree that the few snippets we get where he talks about, like, oh, uh, this person named Black lives on this side of New York, and this side, and whatever, like, there's some interesting little portraits there that I could have seen, I agree, like, just sort of, like, a, a journey of this kid, like, going from all these people, even though, to be fair, that, like he says in the movie, if he went to every single person named Black in New York City, it would take, like, ten years, or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, three years, if he visited two every Saturday
0: right uh, <laughs> or, okay. because he has to calculate that to the specific letter which is another thing is like he has like the narration also stuff it's it's so many of these weird like autism tics that feel so explicitly like oh this is hollywood's understanding what autism is which is like yep oh it's like he's a savant but he's quirky as opposed to like an actual like disorder that someone has to deal with
1: I'm surprised jeffrey rush isn't in here teach him how to play piano
0: <laughs> right true yes but, but yeah, so I, in case you couldn't tell from what we're talking about, Adam, you're not a big fan of this movie, are you?
1: I fucking hate it, dude. I really don't like it. Uh, I mean, pretty much right off the bat, to be honest, when, when they're showing the, you know, it starts with the narration and stuff, I instantly was like, oh, no. Uh, I even wrote in my review, I got a lot of, like, Book of Henry vibes off this movie.
0: Not inaccurate
1: at all, no. <laughs> fucking go back and listen, I hate Book of Henry. Uh, I think we both do. But it, it's just no, it's not good. Like you said, they're throwing all this shit on this kid. Like, this kid's gotta carry this movie, and he is not up to snuff to do it, so he just comes across, like, unlikable. And he shouldn't be. You should really, really feel that for this kid's journey and, like, wanting to keep his dad's memory alive and all that, but really, you don't care. I was more interested in the Jeffrey Wright fucking little five minute story than I was anything that this the whole movie did
0: right yeah because Jeffrey Wright plays one of the the people named Black that he goes to um, who he is the uh, husband who's being estranged from his wife played by Viola Davis who's the initial person we see in that household and you know in that scene Viola Davis is holding her own she's like oh, you know, the for sure. idea of like a woman who's like who, whose marriage is falling apart and still with this like kid that just suddenly come into her house or whatever the fuck it's, it's not uh, no, no fault of her Especially playing off this kid, she does her best with this like annoying ass young Sheldon kid who wants to make out with her. Oh God, the can I kiss you? Oh God, no. (laughs) What the fuck? No, dude. This movie is just ultimately, it's very much just like sort of cutesy tragedy movie basically about, like, you know, somebody dealing with the, like, lack of, you know, logical sense of 9-11, basically. Just trying to deal with, like, that both on an emotional and, in his case, like, this logical level. And, I mean, I'm not against necessarily somebody doing a 9-11 movie. I think there are glimmers in this movie where I think they do a pretty good job with it. Like, I would say my favorite performance of this whole movie is Sandra Bullock. Like, when she gets to do something like the scene where she's talking to Tom Hanks on the phone on 9-11 or even, like, later on. As much as, as contrived as that whole ending is, I feel like Ugh. she's doing a lot to try and, like, make that work as much as she can. And, like, if anything, I would want more of, like, that story of just, like, a mother trying to, like, connect back with her son after, you know, he loses to his father, who he was so much closer to.
1: Yeah, right. That could be something interesting. You don't get that, though. Instead, you get John Goodman for two minutes for some fucking reason. Yes, that that would be an interesting story. I agree with you. The, the mo- best scene in the movie, as far as like, oh, fuck, is when she's on the phone with Tom Hanks and she's looking out her office windows at the towers. That is a very powerful moment, but it's just, that's really kind of it. Like, the only other scene you really get is at the end when he's got his head on her lap and he tells her, you know, oh, dad loves you, said you were a perfect girl, and she starts crying and stuff. Like, she's really trying
0: to emote or, or even there's there's also the scene a bit earlier where, like, she's arguing with him after, like, she w- he wakes her up in the middle of the night, and it's just like, look, yeah. it's, it's not all about fucking logic, okay? Like, sure, we buried the empty box, but it's like, that was your dad that was trying to keep, like, some kind of memory alive of him for the both of us.
1: Yeah, that way we right. can say goodbye to him, you know?
0: Right, meanwhile, he's yeah, going fucking young Sheldon over there, just, like, being an <laughs> asshole.
1: <laughs> I wish it was you! Like, fuck you, kid! You little jerk-off.
0: Also, setting up Thomas Horn really badly when it's like, "Oh, hey, your movie parents are Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock, two of the most well-loved movie stars ever." <laughs> or your fucking parents. <laughs> yep, have at it. Yes, yeah, so your mom
1: is going to be played by Daniel Day Lewis and Tilda Swinton. Uh, <laughs> go ahead.
0: <laughs> but even to be fair, like even Tom Hanks is very much like like the same thing like Sandra Bullock is trying so much. This is very much Tom Hanks in like a pilot mode. I'm just oh. like, oh, I'm, I'm lovable dad. And, and then anyway, Tom Hanks in pilot mode. Better than most actors on their best day. Uh, but at the same time.
1: Oh, for sure. He's got a little bit of an accent. Right. A little bit. And it, it works. Like, he's Tom Hanks. The thing is, Tom Hanks is always charming. You know, he, he's Tom Hanks. You can't not... I mean, I would hope you don't. Ha- nobody hates Tom Hanks. I mean, I know there are people who do because they suck. But Tom Hanks is like, you know, Jimmy Stewart. Man, where anytime you see him, you're like, oh, Tom Hanks. And you get a smile like he's he's trying he might be on pilot mode but yeah he's still better than 90% of the shit in this movie
0: right um as opposed to what once again we we only get fleeting glimpses of either of them And we keep focusing on this kid on this journey and the inevitable twist, which you kind of mentioned. I do like the idea of like basically the reveal of like what the key is like, oh, this was like a total accident. This was a huge issue of circumstance where Jeffrey Wright had this like vase that he had accidentally put like this key to his father's safety deposit box. And Tom Hanks got the vase and he was trying to find that key for so long. So it wasn't really like a thing of like, oh, this is part of like a big scavenger hunt to find out more about my dad. This was just, like, oh, an accident of like, circumstance of meeting other people, which, once again, would be a story that could work if this yep. was more about, like, the weird circumstances of being, especially in a city like New York, especially it, when we're focusing on, like, oh, let's follow all these random different people who are named black, as opposed to, once again, just being about this kid being, like, oh, fuck was or whatever, like, his substitute curse words oh, that he fucking puts in.
1: Oh, <laughs> get the Fukunawa out of here. Right, okay. yes. All right. <laughs> Yeah, it's, well, he should, like I said to you, you know, no, not even blaming the acting, but just the character is unlikable. He's a little prick. Like, you know, if you want to chalk it up to his, you know, applied autism, I think that's a cop out. I think he's just a little rude ass kid. And I don't want to follow this fucking little jerk for two hours. Like I don't, like I said, I'd be so like, if he was just sort of our bridge to different character stories and sort of, like I said, where they're at post nine 11 and how it affected them either economically or family wise or whatever, much more interesting than following this kid. And then the whole contrived wrap up, I mean, it's just so fucking forced to me. I mean, I knew what you were doing. Oh, fuck off. What, what is this? It's uh, This movie's to me, I found it kind of insulting. I, I I just, I really, really don't like this fucking
0: movie. Well, no, it feels like very typical Oscar bait. Like, the most, like, if you look up Oscar bait in a dictionary, this is a great example to put in there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's super emotionally manipulative. That's all it's trying to do is make people cry. I mean, even with the letter at the end where all the other people are reading it and crying, and you're supposed to be like, oh, my God. Like, I didn't care. I didn't care about anything in this movie.
0: No, it all rings very hollow in a way that like the worst of Oscar bait would, and it's such a bummer that like this would be on in any other world a movie that tried to get Oscar buzz and was like laughed. Out of like the fucking critic circles like how fucking dare you get this out of my fucking face but in this 2011 year which this is a year we've talked about a lot in terms of the Oscar far, this is like the year the artist won and Meryl Streep won her Oscar for the Iron Lady it's a weak ass Oscar year so oh, yeah. just like oh we gotta get something in there for like the eighth slot or whatever at this time so it's extremely incredibly close I guess sure
1: well, and you right, and you could tell even the idea of why they picked it is so hollow, because A, it's got the cast, and B, it's 9-11 related. So that's why they're like, oh, yeah, we'll throw this one in there.
0: Even what you mentioned with, like, Jeffrey Rush in Shine, it's the most sort of insulting example of that, where especially, like, you mentioned, it's like, oh, he's got, like, some sort of, like, vague mental disorder, so we have to, like, really frame that. As like, oh, that's why he like acts kind of like an asshole sometimes. Instead of like, no, but you can make like a nuanced portrait of a person who has like autism or something like that. It doesn't have to be like the worst version of the kid from Jerry Maguire. Just like you, know, the the head weighs seven thousand pounds. Fuck you, I hate you, mom, <laughs> and everybody else who's against me. Fuck this kid.
1: But he's right. smart. So, but that's because of his autism. So, bye-bye. he can invent paper fucking you know staircases and all that shit in that book which looked like the fucking one of the books from seven. Like, fuck off.
0: Really? This is a serial killer origin story with this kid.
1: I mean, like I said, dude, I, I, I have no problem with invoking, you know, movies that try to invoke emotion and everything. I, Cause I guess that's what every movie does in a way, you know, that's the point. But when it, that's, it's only base to like, well, if you cry at it, that means it was good. Like, fuck you, dude. Like, this is just such a manipulative ploy of a fucking piece. like, Fuck off! Like just fuck off, really. I mean, you're cheap. To me, it even cheapens the real tragedy that happened. It's just, it's just a fucking garbage fire of a moment I mean,
0: especially when like so much of the imagery is about uh thomas horn thinking that tom hanks father is the guy who actually fell out of the building during I which is a real thing know, which I is like really know. fucking sick and uh, disgusting quite frankly that's
1: disgusting it was disgusting and the line you know well i guess all kids could think that that's their dad too like fuck you but it wasn't all kids that was a real man who probably had kids and a family and you're fucking cheapening it. fuck you I just, yeah, this movie, like I said, it's insulting. It's, you know, granted, again, I was not personally really affected by 9-11. Obviously, I live in Michigan. I mean, I, I guess we were all affected in a way, but not at the level that the people in this movie were, or that these characters supposedly are. And it just feels like trivializing the whole thing for people who really did go through these things and it just feels like a cheap ploy to to make a buck and to sort of like i said be emotionally manipulative and you know how many people i know a lot of people who go see movies and if the movie makes them cry or whatever they're like oh that was fucking good like how many people forrest gump oh my god when he cries at the gravesite at the end oh like who gives a fuck like, it's, like, who fucking care. Oh, that's your takeaway? Fuck off. Like, it's just... I, I just... No, nah, this is just insulting, bottom-of-the-barrel cinema.
0: Well, and especially with, like, the 9-11 thing, I will say, like, obviously, I wasn't in New York either when that happened. But I do remember being a kid younger, even, than Mr. Thomas Horn when 9-11 happened. And I still remember, like, there's this whole thing in this movie where he's like, oh, they didn't tell us what happened, but we went home anyway. Like, I was in Florida and I was a very young kid, and they told us, like, a plane went into a tower. We were at least aware, basically, of that. If you're in New York City, they're telling you what happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was, I think I was, I was literally 17 or 18. I was sleeping, and my mom woke me up, you know, out of my bed in in tears, crying. She was worried that, you know, oh, my God, you're going to get drafted and all that. But just that immediately, immediate shock and, like, worry and all that stuff and it, it, i mean it was terrifying of course but even that though i think of it even like that like even someone like my mom who at the time you know she, it might have been for selfish reasons but she was incredibly emotional and scared and worried and we live in michigan i can't imagine how people felt in new york and for this movie to take that and really sort of trivialize it in a way not necessarily trivialize it but almost exploit it it's just to me it's just disgusting it's bottom of the barrel lowest denominator like Let's get the feels out of people. And I, I just, I have no respect for that type of storytelling at all. Never have. I've talked about it in on the show. I don't know how many times that I think mo- movies that deliberately try to be emotionally manipulative are uh, fucking bullshit. It, it, to me, it's like, it's like getting just shitty jump scares in a horror movie. It's the cheapest tactic you could possibly take to make people be like, oh,
0: it was pretty good. Fuck you. Especially with just without really earning it. like The, the manipulation really comes At from all. the fact of like, yeah, we're, we're only using 9-11 as the veiled thing of like, oh my God, this is like the terrible day. We, it's a shortcut for like, you all remember nine eleven, right? That was fucked up, right? Right. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah. We, we, we know what we're dealing with here. So that's the shortcut. And now you can all feel bad about this kid, even though he's a fucking asshole.
1: <laughs> Which, even the way you put it, they even refer to it as the bad day. In the yeah, money. the
0: worst day. They <laughs> yeah,
1: the worst day. They don't even have the balls to fucking say what it is. Like fuck you. You guys, you fucking try to play it, just try to play it safe and also at the same time be like, oh just fuck off.
0: And like when they play the voicemails and shit like that, it's it's, it's
1: Oh, just for really God's sakes. Yeah. I mean just <sighs>
0: And it's a shame because there's a way of doing, like, interesting shortcuts that work for, like, getting you emotionally invested, like with Viola Davis, to circle back to our topic – probably one of the few bits of like emotional sincerity I got out of this movie is the bit where he asks like can I take a picture of you so I can remember you and she initially is like okay sure and then halfway through like as the picture' being taken she's like no I don't want to do this and she covers her face that's a great way of indicating that a
1: thousand percent her yeah. husband's leaving he, the the kids telling the story about how elephants you know can't actually cry you know whatever the reason but yeah great. Great moment, or even just the snippet you get of him taking a picture of someone who looks like she might be going through chemo, or right. something like that. You're like, you could do something here, and they just don't even fucking like at the end, which is like, oh yeah, misses whoever, and then misses whoever, and, and you just get like a moment. Like, I want to see more about that old lady who is about to cry when he's talking to Sandra Bullock, and then just a barrel of laughs when he's when she's talking to the boy. I want to see that. I want to know what that story behind that lady is. You, they do not even have attempt to give it to you.
0: Nope, because... It's bullshit. Because, no, it's bullshit, yeah. So I, I think that's... that's uh, Unless you have... Do you have any other lingering thoughts, Adam, as final thoughts before we get into our good movie? <laughs>
1: Uh, Just final thoughts as this movie fucking blows. it's Like I said, it's an emotionally manipulative piece of shit. It it takes something that was real and horrible and tragic and forever changed the landscape of our country and even the world as we know it because of our country's response and trivializes it and makes it a uh, bullshit-like pull-to-the-heartstrings movie, which can be done. It, It was a real thing, and you could make a movie about you know, sort of where people are at post nine eleven and the survivors of it. This movie isn't that. This movie is just a fucking just like look, look nine eleven, cry, 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 cry. Oh, little kid with autism, Oscars. Like fuck you, fuck you. This cheap ass piece of shit. I'm
0: enraged. Wow, I don't usually get this enraged anymore about movies. This is this, this is a new.
1: It's <laughs> this been is a new minute. Bottom
0: of the bureau one. Yeah, it's been a minute.
1: Been a minute. <laughs> yeah. this one is definitely deserving.
0: Yeah, I honestly recommend, if you want a good movie that's about this, not like a great movie necessarily, but a good movie about, like, this fallout, I would recommend the movie uh, Worth, starring Michael Keaton, which I believe is on Netflix that's about, like, the insurance adjusters having to deal with, like, the fallout of 9-11. That was a good movie. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. That was a solid movie that has that as its main focus and deals with the emotional fallout of that from several characters, as opposed to Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which is manipulative bullshit, as Adam mentioned, Uh, just uh, not a good showing from either any of these big stars that are in here that we know and love, or even poor Thomas Horn, who uh, this is his first and last acting performance, and uh, I feel sorry for that kid, but I blame Stephen Daldry squarely. For how oh, sure. fucking much yeah, yeah. He, he like really cheated that kid out of being able to do something interesting, given so much that was like put against him, but still very bad movie on every level. But let's get to a much better movie that unfairly didn't get any Oscar nominations: *Widows*.
1: You have no idea, do you? Or did you choose not to know?
0: I'm bad. Our husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. What I've learned from men like your late husband and my father that you reap what you sow. Let's hope so. So, Widows came out November 16th, 2018 from uh, Academy Award-winning director Steve McQueen. This is his follow-up to uh, 12 Years a Slave, which had come out uh, back in 2013, uh, which and he co this movie with Jillian Flynn based on a British TV show Um, And if you're unaware of this movie, basically it's about um, the titular widows who are the wives of these uh, sort of career criminals um, who have to uh, deal with the loss of their husbands at the beginning of the movie after they try and pull off a big heist and everything goes wrong. Um, but as things go along, they realize that, oh, the person that they had stolen money from was uh, this guy, uh, Jamal Manning, played by Brian Tyree Henry, who's running for alderman in Chicago, comes up to Viola Davis and says, hey, look, uh, you got to give me my money back uh, or else uh, things are going to happen. Because he's also late in his past, he was a career criminal and all this. And uh, she ends up plotting to steal that money. Uh, from Colin Farrell who is playing the opposing political force who um, is the son of the guy who's been like in that position for so long played by Robert Duvall. it's a big sort of like uh, political machinations heist movie of sorts and uh, I saw this in theaters and I loved it but I remember at the time it was kind of uh, dismissed not really not a lot of people saw it it didn't get much of the Oscar buzz you would figure a movie made by a guy who made the best picture winning movie from a couple years ago would get. And um, I think that's kind of a shame, and I think that hurt people seeing this movie, including yourself, Adam. I remember at the time you weren't that interested in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, no interest, to be honest until like talking to you about it you're like no dude it fucking slaps you gotta see it you gotta see it and then i mean honestly i finally watched it i don't even know man six months ago for the first time something like that maybe even a year uh not that long ago and i fucking loved it uh there's many things about this movie i love a the the cinematography is amazing and the fact that it's shot in just dingy ass parts of chicago for real it's you know i that cliche like the fucking the landscape's its own
0: character but Chicago is a character in this film and that's a very good point right but it is though it applies
1: you know, you go from the boroughs and the, the ghettos to, like, the Ritzy area, the Irish area of Chicago, all this stuff. Like, it it, it really works. And the cast in this movie is just fucking insane. You know, we, of course, Viola Davis, we mentioned her, Brian, Brian Tyree Henry, Colin Farrell, Robert Duvall, John Bernthal, Liam Neeson, Elizabeth Daldecky, Michelle Rodriguez, Daniel Kalua. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And it's just Everybody's at the top of their game. Daniel Kalua alone is one of the most terrifying sort of drug dealer bad guys I've seen in, a, in years.
0: He's the most terrifying henchman. He's a rare like henchman who is so much more terrifying than the man. terrifying.
1: <laughs> when he's eyeing down those dudes who are freestyle, and you're like, oh, this is not gonna end well for them. <laughs> like, there's no way. It's fucking great. Like this movie is great. It's shot beautiful. The fucking Warner Van, you know, escape in the very beginning, a, a heist is just incredible.
0: One of my favorite shots is the bit where after Colin Farrell has, like, the big rally thing and he gets in his car, and it's, like, it's a shot that in any other movie you would get a lot of, like, inside the car with Colin Farrell talking to his constituents and stuff, but it's all on the outside of the car, and you hear the dialogue as they, like, go from this, like, poor part of town to, like, his actual, like, big palatial estate, and it's such an incredible shot where it, like, goes from the left side of the car to the right side of the car, and you get so much of, like, oh, what this politician is hiding behind, literally, in the terms of this car, like, what's going on while other people are living their fucking lives as politicians. Like, Oh fuck, I hate these people. And they're doing all this bullshit. They're killing each other in the streets. It's so crazy. Like, Oh my God, it's, it says it's such a great movie. That's like inherently like in other hands, this would be a traditional heist movie, but I love it as like, it's a heist movie. That's about the fallout of like a regular heist movie. Like, any other high yeah. school would be the one about, like, Liam Neeson and his crew, John Barenthal and all them. And their, mis- their whole, like, reason for doing it would be like, oh, my wife. Oh, I love my family, my wife, all this other stuff. And this is the movie about those women who often get, like, tossed aside as motivations, who have to deal with the fallout of, like, oh, my husband did a horrible, fucked up, you know, robbery of some sort, so I have to deal with it.
1: Yeah, now he's dead, and I got to deal with this. Yeah, it's great. I I mean, and the thing about this movie, yeah, it does have. Obviously, it's a heist movie, but it's got a lot of good action. It also deals with politics and sort of class system. It also deals with religion. I mean, there's a lot to this movie. There is a lot in here, and all of it is given proper enough attention. That's one thing. I, I another thing I will say about this movie: none of it felt like particularly rushed. There was not nothing that was sort of.
0: Especially if it's way, based on side. like a British TV show.
1: Yeah, which rights. is crazy. Yeah, which is crazy. I didn't even know of the show. But yeah, it's it's pretty fucking phenomenal. Like, it's pretty great. And just these four women, you know, the main four with Michelle Rodriguez, Viola Davis, Cynthia Erivo, and Elizabeth Debicki. One of my favorite bits of the movie is kind of how how they end up in their their husband's old fucking like hideout or whatever right the warehouse area where they Yeah they they're in there and there's all these shadows of their form of their you know dead husbands and all the shit they were into and it becomes like this bonding place for them like it's so cool what a cool way to do it and it's just handled with such care and another thing about this movie that i really love and respect it's not like oh girl power it's just they're normal people women or not normal people who have to come up with something because they're in desperation and it just so happens that they're women treated like normal fucking people instead of they're girls Like it's just, it's a really, really well done movie. It's it treats every these four women with the utmost respect. It gives them all some kind of arc and some kind of moment. Uh, It's just, it's really well handled.
0: That's what I love. Is really like this movie. I think a big trouble with the marketing is it was very marketed as sort of like an award season movie. In a more traditional way, just like very dramatic shots of people looking side to side at each other, just like, oh, we gotta do this, oh, this is gonna get real, and all this other stuff, but it didn't really promote the fact that this is a fucking crowd pleaser movie. Like, this is extremely oh, yeah. entertaining. At the same time, it's dealing with all these like big political things and like these big messages. Just about especially like women who do often feel like so downtrodden and like are often like treated as like oh we don't like there's no problem with them like they're they're just the wives of these like fucking criminal dudes. There's no way they're gonna like do anything against us. It's totally fine. It's totally cool. Like they're constantly like it's a movie that's clearly recognizes like these women are treated as second classes in some in various ways. But at the same time, it's. Like such a fucking badass movie about these ladies like getting their sort of revenge. Right, Viola Davis's wardrobe is lit. It's fucking. It's so good. She looks a fuck
1: like a million bucks the whole time. Like she looks great. She's dude. And how buff is she? Like she really put in the work for this fucking movie, man. And she's great in it. And she's great. And you know, I watched this. uh, There's like a 55 minute uh, making of featurette. You know, so I watched it. And uh, one of my favorite moments of the featurette, even as Viola Davis talking about, you know, she's like, Steve came to me and said, you know, I don't want you to wear a wig. I want your real hair. I want you to be you. He's like, I've seen women who look like you with these white Irish guys in white you know, interracial marriages and couples all throughout the world. She's like, but it's never been done on screen. They always have to do something different to change how the woman looks. He's like, and I don't want that. I want you. And Viola Davis was like, this. that was the most important part to me. She's like, I, you've never seen a couple like we are. Me and Liam on screen, maybe ever. She's like, so for us to do that, like it opens up when you first meet us, we're in bed together and we're kissing. I'm like, that's so fucking cool. Like, that's the one thing this movie's got all these little moments that you really don't think about. Like even Michelle Rodriguez running the Kinsierra store, which that's a huge thing in that culture. And you don't really think about it. And just Elizabeth Del Bicky having to go back to like being a call girl and all stuff. Like, there's a lot of like moments with these characters that you know are treated so with like care and with you know honoring and respecting the culture and sort of where who these women are it's none of it feels like forced throwaway it's so important to who these women are in this movie and like I said it's given the utmost care none of it feels like exploitive none of it feels like well you know like I said you got to make badass chicks there's none of that it's so smart that's the one thing I can say about this movie too that's another thing I can say about this movie not the one thing I got a lot to say but it's just smart from head to toe, this script and the decisions made it's just so smart. I am just flabbergasted by, you know, that this movie, uh, granted I was part of it, but that this movie has just been so underseen as it is. Like, and I've recommended it to people too, and people are like, yeah, maybe. And none of them, nobody watches it. Nobody watches it. And it's like, I'm going to have to sit down with like people I know, like in person, like we're watching fucking widows. Because I know anybody I watch with is going to enjoy it. There's so much in this movie to enjoy.
0: Yeah, to go back to the thing you're talking about in terms of just, like, the the sort of intimacy. Like, I love all the flashbacks we do get of um, Viola Davis and Liam Neeson together. They have the thing where they start off in bed. But even, like, the scenes where we do get the two of them having to deal with, like, the fallout of their son being killed in that horrible way. I like the fact Uh, that it deals... It steals so much more with just the two of them arguing with each other and having, like, that horrible, tragic, like, back and forth that sadly predicts the movie later of just, like, don't make the one thing I regret having a child with you. And then she says, well, maybe you should have and maybe this wouldn't have happened to your kid if it was somebody else who they were with. It's like, Ouch. that's a really smart way of dealing with like such a huge systemic issue in an intimate character focused way. That's what this movie does so well. It's like, it's so character focused while dealing with these big macro issues. There's a, the micro element of like, it's like how it affects these people that we see throughout the movie in the middle of like a badass heist high situations. Like it makes them so much more human in a way you don't get from like a lot of these genre movies.
1: Right. You said it just perfectly. It's this very like character study and these beautiful moments just backed by Badass scenes of action. Like, that's the other thing about this movie. For Steve McQueen to be his first real action movie, dude, he knows how to shoot action, this guy. Like, it's really well done. There's something enjoyable for everyone in this movie. If you want to see a cool heist movie with car chases and guns and explosions, it's there. If you want to see a character piece, it's there. If you want to see a movie about strong women, it's There, I mean, this movie or anything about systemic racism or political things or corrupt cops or corrupt politicians—it's all here. I I just, it's just so good. I mean, it's one of those movies that now I've seen it twice. I almost can't wait to watch it a third time. But I, but the third time I watch it, I gotta watch it with somebody. Like I'm probably gonna make my wife watch this with me tomorrow. Like honestly. (laughs) <laughs> we're going to watch this and you're going to watch it with me. And I, th- I have no doubt she'll like it.
0: Right. And I mean, it just has like, everybody has, like, you mentioned, like, a really fun moment. Like, I, I referenced this earlier. I love Elizabeth Debicki, one, being just able to be so tall. Like I forget I mean, how tall she ridiculous. is. you see her in this movie where like she's against like Cynthia Rivo and Viola Davis, and Michelle Rodriguez, people have averaged like slightly smaller height and she's like six foot three. So the shot has to go like well, all the way back to get her in frame. It's like if a
1: big bird wished to be human,
0: like she's I mean, just uh,
1: so tall. Well, I'm saying she's so tall. Right.
0: It's crazy. Right, but she gets to also be, like, this interesting character with stuff like the, like I mentioned, the whole thing where she puts on, like, that Russian accent at the gun show right? the guns and leaves with the hot dog. Fuck yeah. That's so fun. Uh, but at the same time, she has to get, gets to have, like, the intimate moments. Like, I love her relationship with Lucas Haas. And yes. how, like, that evolves where initially you feel like oh this is gonna be like maybe a bit more developed than like the average call relationship but it's like oh no he's actually using you like it's oh, yeah. so much it's like how you get to see like the, many of the male like love interest characters in this movie have that initial like spark of like you can get why they were initially interested in them but then they backstab them it's like oh fuck you like especially like the Liam Neeson of it all the biggest backstab of all just like especially with the even the the, the element of like Carrie Coon is the fourth widow in the actual story and she doesn't get a Attached to all this because, as it turns out, she's with Liam Neeson secretly this whole time, and that baby is Liam Neeson's baby. It's so <laughs> fucked up when you find, like, when Viola Divas goes over to her house and sees the flask, and then, like, bails because she knows, like, oh my god, I know what this is. And then the reveal of that later, she's like, oh, you son of a bitch. We saw how intimate you were with her earlier. You monster.
1: Yeah, you motherfucker. He deserves everything that happens to him. That piece of shit. How dare you?
0: Yep. And, and even, like, the, there's there's that element where, like, all of these even, like, male characters are incredibly human. Like, I love all of the back and forth between Colin Farrell and Brian Tyree Henry when they're trying to, like, basically uh, go back and forth about the race. Which is like, look, what if I pull back from, like, my advertising or some of this other stuff? Maybe we can, like, make some kind of deal work out. Like, these backdoor kind of political shenanigans that are going on, especially with... Colin Farrell and Robert Duvall and the casual racism that's just going on throughout all of that. Robert Duvall flies off with some off-color words and Colin Farrell is like not even angry about the racism. He just does know they have to deal with his dad this whole time. I love that relationship and how like fucking inherently like levels of skeevy it really is.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, that's the other thing too. You know, you just, I've, I've actually, it's so funny. I've, re-watched, I've watched for the first time a couple of Colin Farrell movies that i had never seen. A24 movies. But it's just, you you watch it, you realize what a chameleon this guy is. And in this movie, with him and Robert Duvall, like, you instantly believe, oh, yeah, they're father and son. Yeah, yeah. And one of my favorite bits of this movie, too, is when, you know, Colin Farrell basically tells him, I'm just waiting for you to die. Yes. And Robert Duvall, like, oh, you can tell that actually hurts him. Where this guy, like, the whole movie, like, nothing. This guy's just a fucking asshole. But that one moment.
0: That it hurts him, but also he's using that to try and manipulate Colin Farrell further Uh at the same Uh time, yeah. It's such a great moment. God, those two. I mean,
1: just fucking titans. That's one thing you could say about Steve McQueen. He got the best out of these people.
0: Or even down to, like, uh, another great actor in this movie is Olivia, the White Terrier of Viola Davis. That's a great dog actor. Such a good girl. Right. She was such a good girl. Shout out. She was also at the same year in Game Night. She's Jesse Plemons' dog.
1: Oh, what a good girl.
0: The what best a good girl. girl. Great. <laughs> best supporting actress for Olivia, please.
1: Yeah, 100%. I love that her name's Olivia. I love when people give dogs human names. <laughs>
0: right. But that scene, even when like when Brian Tyree Henry arrives at Viola Davis' place and like is just holding the dog, like, even before he gets like violent. With the dog. Like, when he's just holding her regularly, just, like, this feels off. This was, like, a Bond villain weird shit. Like, this isn't going to work out.
1: And he's super intimidating in this, too. I mean, he's not Daniel Kaluuya intimidating, but he's super intimidating.
0: But you believe why he'd be somebody who could, like, have sort of puppet strings on Kaluuya. Which you mentioned him earlier, but Kaluuya is... So amazing in a supporting part. In oh,
1: movie. he's just, like, so good.
0: Anytime he fucking shows up, it's just immediate, like, I don't know what he's going to do. Like, even earlier on when, like, they're at the um, cemetery for Liam Neeson's funeral, and he's body language when he's just, like, leaning against that one statue, and then has, like, the twiddly fingers, like, hello. <laughs> it's,
1: like, so And scary. even, and how, how well done is it, even in that the fact that everyone is in black, Brian Henry is in black, but Danogaloo is wearing white. Yes. You know, just like a fuck you, just even a further fuck you. I'm not participating in this shit. Like, it's it's so well done.
0: And and the scene where, like, he stabs that uh, one dude in the wheelchair at the bowling alley. Oh, good is, God. It's fucking intense. Or even just the look he gives when, like, he steals the truck from the ladies. And the way he, like, has his eyes focused and, like, his teeth moving around. Like, yeah, I fucking did this. I'm doing this. And then his death, the car crash of his death is so fucked up. Oh, it's so good, though. He deserves <laughs> that shit, too. What a motherfucker. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like, you, this is what you get when you have somebody like a Steve McQueen taking on material that could be like very traditional, like throwaway genre. Like this could be like a Liam Neeson movie in Like Oh, one of the, like,
1: absolutely. Oh yeah, 100 like, like
0: Liam Neeson comes out in January and Dad's Flock 2, it kind of movie. But yeah. I love even the fact that like that intentional casting of Neeson works so well. It's just like a, oh, this is like what they have to face off against. Like the, the face of like these kind of genre action movies. Um, but yeah, like all this stuff, like every single action set piece is so well done but also untraditional in a way that has like this deliberate move that feels like oh this could be one of his like great one shots that he does in like Shame or 12 Years a Slave but it's applied to this badass action scene. I think that's the thing is that he has such a different control of the camera that makes it work at like such a different level for like traditionally schlocky material.
1: No, yeah, I completely agree. Steve McQueen, like he just, he's on top of his game. He's on top of every aspect you can tell. Like he, he, is a hundred percent in tune with what he's trying to show and what he's trying to put out, and what he's trying to make as far as a movie. It, it, it feels like his vision, you know, I'm sure he's asked you, but it almost feels like it's uncompromised. Like this is exactly what Steve McQueen wanted to show you. He could get, you are watching exactly the movie he wanted to make.
0: Which could probably only come from a guy who had just had massive success with like an Oscar winning movie, like 12 years of slave. Yeah. You
1: know? I mean, to the point to where, you know, even in the, the featurette I watched, and I read a little bit about the movie too, they were trying to push for him to shoot in New York or somewhere like that and fake it for Chicago. And he said, no, I want to shoot in Chicago. And they're like, okay, it's going to cost more, but sure. Only because of that Oscar clout, where they like, all right, go ahead. Like, there's no question.
0: I mean that's what also got gotten to be able to do something like the small axe movies, which if you have not seen out there, I would recommend the the big like mini series of movies basically put out for Amazon. Um, it's a really great series of things. But that dude has such a fascinating diverse career as well. To the degree that I almost like it's such a bummer that like this isn't like the the big sort of like mainstream I success know. it could have been. Like because like I said, this movie like in a big crowd would have fucking killed. It is like such a stellar example of like how to make a fun heist movie that still has like so many of these like Layers underneath it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'm a sucker for a good heist movie. My favorite movie of all time is a heist movie, and this is a really fucking stellar heist movie.
0: Right. We're in it's mostly like the planning, actually, like cause it's a two hour movie, and we don't get the actual heist. Of sorts until about an hour, 40 or so, like, before, like, the 30 minutes before the movie ends, basically. And the heist is, like, so immaculately put together, which is, like, that tension of, like, oh, my God, things are fucking up, all this other stuff. Um, And uh, all the way down to, like, when Robert Duvall shows up, you're like, oh, fuck, he's here. (laughs) Oh, no, and you recognize wrecked Davis's fucking face. Mm Mm-hmm. It goes to shit pretty quick. Um, and also, you know, we haven't done a lot of, like, talk about her, but shout out to Cynthia rivo who this year made, like, the one-two punch of Bad Times at El Royale and this movie. I was just like, this lady's a fucking star. She's been on Broadway and shit, but, like, you have, like, movie star charisma. Like, from the moment, like, she's like, oh, I gotta, like, do this other job. Hold on, honey, I'm sorry. I just got home, but I gotta leave. And she pulls a fucking Terminator run. Like, I love that fucking run that she does. Oh,
1: yeah, man. She fucking books it. She's she's the T-1000,
0: dude. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and even when, like when she later uh, meets up with Viola Davis and Michelle Rodriguez brings her in, and it's just like, oh, can you vouch for her? I don't need a voucher. And all of she's like, yeah, fuck yeah, this is great. These personalities just, like, going off each other.
1: Yep. She's pretty fucking great, dude.
0: But I guess you're back into Viola Davis. So before you go into like closing thoughts on this, after you know a huge career of supporting roles, this is her first leading role in a movie. And what do you think she brings to this that like most other like big stars couldn't have brought to that main character?
1: Quiet strength, quiet power, quiet confidence. Like the, the the thing is, like you get the moments of her breaking down and all that. Of course. But she never once feels like she's not in control. Like she is just on point, dude. She's there's such a strength to her. And and even think about Viola Davis in just a look. Viola Davis is one of those people who can act with just her eyes, and you get every sense of what she's trying to say. Uh, She's just she's fucking phenomenal, man. And uh, I, I just I think you know, all her years of being sort of the character actor, how good she is at doing those sort of things. And it's just I'm glad it's, you know, a character actress who got to do this and sort of step up and Viola Davis got to do that. And I mean she's incredible. She's incredible. And I think if we would have got like sort of the big mainstream actress, like it would have just been another fucking potentially Oscar Beatty performance. And I didn't get that out of Viola Davis in this movie at all. I got that she really gave a shit about what she's doing. And maybe that hunger for the starring role adds to it. uh, Cause it's just a dynamite performance.
0: Well, I think it's, like, you mentioned, like, that, that quiet strain. I think that's the thing that she has able to display in, like, even a lot of her smaller supporting roles. But I think it's more that vulnerability that I find, it, like, make, sets her apart so that she can do, like, both of those things. Because I think, like, in... Uh, she, the only other time I can think of where she was, like, this truly vulnerable is some, like, offenses. But that's, that's totally built on, like, the, like sort of oscar Beatty performance, a great performance, but still very much like a performance of, like, I am breaking down because my family's falling apart. I like that in this movie she's able to display, like, both sides of that coin to even the degree of, like, she introduces the fact of, like, hey, look, we can't be friends after this. There isn't going to be some reunion. After this, we're done. We're never seeing each other again. We're taking our cuts and going home. But... The ending of this movie has this beautiful soulful thing where like she's at that restaurant and she gives that money away for like I want you to build the you know, rebuild the school library and name it after my son. And then she sees Elizabeth Debicki and has like the, the last shot of the movie is her smile like, Hey, how you been? It's like this right. beautiful, genuine moment of just like she doesn't have to be like the hard ass, like, you know, principal or authority figure cop or whatever that she is in so many other movies. She has she, she actually gets to be like a sensitive person who actually has like layers to her. Yeah, man, because she's fucking awesome. Yeah, that's what she is. Davis is awesome, baby. Uh, But yeah, and we can keep going about Widows, but um, let's go ahead and do our final wrap-up thoughts on Widows.
1: Uh, You know, like I said, man, it's a great heist movie, great action movie, filled with wonderful performances, a lot of nuanced sort of things, and a lot of good messages, a lot of poignant things. I I think there's something in here for everybody. Um, I I just, you know... I fucking love it, man. It's just great. It's one of those that you really hope that more people will see.
0: Yeah, if nothing else, definitely. Um, despite us saying so many specific things about this movie, uh, we possibly couldn't spoil like the entire joy of watching Widows through. Widows is one of those great movies where it's like a little over two hours, but it doesn't feel at all that length that speeds by at such a clip. Uh, and yet you get so much of like the emotional investment, the political investment, the just like... A wow entertainment factor and really genuine character moments that like you don't get in a lot of like of like oscar time movies because there's so much more focused on like oh we have to like win awards we could have like that's when you get your extremely loud and incredibly closes they're much more emotionally manipulative versus this is a movie that has like so much emotional investment and charm and tragedy and beauty to it while at the same time just fucking kicks ass fucking kick so much ass and it's such a shame that like this movie has gone just came out quietly didn't get make much of a uh, you know a dent in either the Oscar race or even just box office wise I was out there championing it just like widows see it please it's great go out there and see it. it's such an awesome movie but you people didn't listen so hopefully you listen now and you can be like Adam who was rightfully and entertainingly proven wrong yeah motherfuckers (laughs) But now, Adam, it's time we get to our weekly segment, the Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double, double, double,
1: double, 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 redo. That works.
0: So every week on Double Redue, um, in addition to talking about our two features, uh, Adam and I uh, recommend our own uh, sort of Double Redo, where we talk about a good movie we'd recommend you all see, and a bad movie we would have you all avoid each. Uh, so each of us has two movies. And Adam, you're starting out, so what are your Double Redo choices?
1: Alrighty, so for my bad pick... think i have which would probably be the obvious one not to say that she's bad in it but the movie itself is fucking dog shit i have the original suicide squad not the suicide squad suicide squad uh that dumpster fire of a shit show you know the one with uh will smith and jared leto and all that garbage uh it's a terrible fucking movie uh, from pretty much beginning to end, it tries so hard to be *Guardians of the Galaxy*, and then with the needle drops and all this stuff. Oh, hey, but don't forget though, Slipknot can climb anything. What the fuck are we talking about here? It's just—it's just, a garbage dumpster fire of a movie. Uh, it, it, it's not entertaining. I don't even think it's particularly well shot. Uh, the character design of the sort of the bad, the the whatever they are creatures are—it's—it's it's just. So uninspired and bad. This is just comic book movie, fucking bottom of the barrel garbage. It's, is it the worst DC has offered? Possibly. Uh, if not, it's definitely in the bottom of the three. Uh, it, it's just not good, garbage. And then for my good, quickly, I have a movie I, I think I might even. Called this before for a redo. If not, calling it now. It's a real sort of heady sci fi movie. It's a remake, but I still really like it. It might just be, uh, I mean, one of my favorite scores of all time, even in this film. I have. Solaris, the George Clooney starring film. Uh, Viola Davis is in it. Eh, Not a huge part, but a pretty substantial uh, role. She's really fucking good in it. Uh, Obviously, everybody else I really like in it. I think visually, the movie's amazing, and like I said, the score is one of my favorites. Uh, It's just one of those also that wasn't really seen, and I get why. It's sort of a heady, kind of a long, eh, you know, sci-fi, Almost horror type film, uh, but I actually really really like it.
0: Um, yeah, I haven't seen Solaris um, for for years. It was one of those like that not didn't have like the best reputation necessarily, but I've seen it have like a bit more of like a cold appreciation, especially amongst like Steven Soderbergh fans. Um, and also, I'd been curious to like watch the original before the remake, and the original's like three hours fucking long, so it's yeah. been, like kind of a hurdle. But I'm fascinated to watch it at some point for sure. I remember that one is one of the ones that actually got an F Cinema Score. Uh, for which people, is like wild wild Well, i mean i guess i get it in terms of based on what i've heard about that movie and like average audience members immediately coming out of it like what do you think oh this is like what the fuck is this shit yeah <laughs> like, i
1: guess yeah. i get it. yeah i get
0: that <laughs> right right uh but then suicide squad yeah we've talked about it many times i would say that's my least favorite of the dceu movies because it's the one that feels the least like an actual completed movie Like, even compared to, say, the Joss Whedon version of Justice League, that feels like at least, like, an outline of a movie. This is like an elevator pitch made into a fucking movie where they have barely anything. And you can tell it was, like, so poorly reshot around, and it just is, like, it's such bottom barrel, sort of, like, attempted universe-building blockbuster filmmaking that just feels, like, so drab and ugly, and it's just, like, it's it's so grating and like easily like one of my least favorites are like big blockbuster movies, regardless of comic books or not in the last like decade or so uh, pretty dire stuff with that one. But uh, for me, uh, my choices, uh, my first good one here is a one that came out on Netflix, got a few Oscar nominations, um, but uh, has kind of like disappeared to the wayside. It's kind of a shame. I have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, which is the, it's based on a true story in terms of Ma Rainey was an actual person, a blues singer, Um, who in the course of this movie takes place in the course of like one afternoon day in which uh, she is recording at um, a studio um, that's uh, over in Chicago. And uh, she has like, you know, certain demands, all this other stuff. And it's dealing with like her kind of like trying to maintain some kind of power that she can get, obviously, as like a black musician in the 20s. Uh, versus, uh, we see a lot of the stuff with the, uh, sort of session musicians also who are arguing with each other, uh, who are played by a host of great actors like Glenn Turman and Coleman Domingo. And of course, Chadwick Boseman, which this was his last film, uh, before his tragic passing. And um, if nothing else, like Viola Davis is great in it for sure. She, it's one of of course a, another rare leading role for her. It's based on August Wilson play, so it's a lot of like people in one room talking to each other, not necessarily the most cinematic thing. But um, it has so many great like people bouncing off of each other and it's it's worth seeing nothing else for like Bozeman got an Oscar nomination for this and was infamously didn't win um, with that Oscar ceremony where they were leading up to best actors so that they could give it to him posthumously, and then Anthony Hopkins won all of a sudden. It was like, Oh good night everybody. I hate that that's the legacy of this movie because it's an incredible performance from Bozeman who does, like, so much with that part and has, like, such, like, interesting facets to his character that shows how much we would miss that dude for being not just Black Panther but a really nuanced, interesting actor. But also Viola's great. Like, this cast is so awesome in general, but, yeah, it's it's a very interesting movie about sort of, like, uh, black blues musicians at that particular time that I would recommend to anybody out there who's at all curious. Um, And then... My Bad is another one where she plays like an authority figure, more of a side character. Um, and it's not necessarily a terrible movie, but it's like peak example of like very forgettable early 2010s blockbuster for me. I have Ender's Game, which is based on the Orson Scott Card, uh, you know, novel that had like a series of books adapted from it. Um, and was kind of like a wet fart of a YA adaptation when it came out. It was part of it, like sort of the tail end of that YA trend. And I kind of get why it follows, like, a lot of the same beats you would see in, like, Hunger Games and some of these other things. Like, it builds an interesting premise, like, basically crafting these children to, like, play war games that ultimately are, spoilers, real by the end of it. Um, and, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily terrible. But it's such, like, a nothing burger of a wet fart of a movie, despite having a lot of great talent. Like, young Asa Butterfield, who I think is a pretty good actor, as the main lead. Or Harrison Ford is, like, the main sort of adult lead. And Viola Deva a bunch of other people. It's, despite the engaging idea, it feels like such a, like, boring, dull, drably-made movie as well, that just sort of feels like, oh, it's so disposable. I get why it wasn't very successful at the time, and it feels like it's one of many examples of Viola Divas coming in, doing her part fine, but ultimately just kind of like, you know, it all for just this bland, forgettable blockbuster movie that no one's going to really remember.
1: I haven't seen either of these. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, all right. I haven't heard anything about uh, Ma Rainey's, like you said, it was just one of those got lost. I am aware of the Chadwick Boseman Oscar sort of snafu, but I didn't even know the title of the movie, to be 100% honest. I, I was sort of checked out that year.
0: What, 2020? Why would you be checked out in that particular year? I don't know what would make you feel dejected. and like
1: <laughs> I, I had some things going on that nobody else did uh very exclusive just to me
0: you were the only one that was affected by the coronavirus just you that's just you were dealing with that problem
1: how do you know about that <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i've had a ender's game i i've never really had an interest didn't read the book obviously and the preview just didn't sell it for me so i never even tried
0: I will say with that Oscar controversy, my favorite part of all that element of it that nobody remembers but I love, that I will never forget, is watching Walking Phoenix's face as he has to deliver that because he won for Joker. So he's doing like the whole like rigmarole. And obviously, he's Walking Phoenix, so he's already like, kind of awkward on stage by himself. Just like, uh, and here, here are the nominees. And the winner is Anthony Hopkins, who isn't here because he's in England sleeping because he's 83 years old um night, everybody <laughs> that's how the yes. ceremony ends <laughs> jesus <laughs> oh one of those especially like they had to like rework the entire thing so actor was at the end of the ceremony it's like no you could have just done best picture and we all moved on from this but you made this like the exclamation point and so it was like a question mark and then it ended <laughs> hot take the
1: oscar ceremonies have had some problems lately
0: What? No. No. What are you talking about? But, you know, that that was an awkward year that year. The next year happened, and nothing bad happened. Nothing weird or awkward that completely affected the flow of things happened. Nope. At all. Nope. Well... Um, it's time that we go ahead and just repeat our titles out there for everybody. So, Adam, your titles.
1: Uh, For my bad, I had Suicide Squad. Again, that is Suicide Squad, not THE Suicide Squad, which is actually a terrific
0: movie. With a great Viola Davis performance.
1: Great Viola Davis performance. And for my good, I had Solaris, which I also really thoroughly enjoy.
0: Uh, And then for my good, I had Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And my bad, I had Andrew's Game.
1: What a good title, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. What a
0: good title. Yeah, it's a really interesting title. Uh, shame I didn't draw people on Shocker Netflix, where everyone was just like, oh, what? 25 other things came out that second, so we couldn't oh, watch them."
1: At least.
0: <laughs> well, on that note, it's time we skirt into the wrap up of the shows, so stay tuned. We'll be doing our picking. For next week's episode, uh, as we go along here. But first, we want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen more of his music, ChrisOliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorlally for our artwork. Uh, Follow him at Night of Water. Uh, That's Night with a K underscore of underscore Water for uh, more of his great stuff. And then thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreoncom slash Pod, Where for just one dollar a month, you get to listen to bonus podcasts or. Um, you know, vote in polls uh, for individual movies or topics that we cover for an episode, and uh, you know, stay tuned for uh, around the end of this month, you'll be getting our bonus episode, which will be an audio commentary for Waterworld. That's yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> Waterworld,
1: Waterworld, baby.
0: <laughs> that classic that everyone's still talking about, Waterworld. Uh, yeah. All that for just See the stunt one ride d- that
1: is probably still going on.
0: Or the stunt show, yes. it's still Yeah, going on. I'm sure it's still...
1: Is it still going on?
0: I, I think it is. I don't know if COVID Good affected that or not, but God. it was going on for like 20-something tw- years. That's the legacy of that particular movie. We'll talk about that in the commentary, I'm sure, which you can listen to for just that $1 by the end of the month. But for more of us, find us at DEDVPod on Twitter and Facebook, and also you can uh, send emails to us, double-edgedoublebill at gmail.com. All spelled out, and for more of me, find me on Twitter and Letterboxd, at not the Who's Tommy. I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com.
1: You could find me on Instagram at atom or Adam, A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M, or you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S C H W A N D T S O N.
0: And uh, for more of our audio antics, uh, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on the network. And uh, you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like 200-something episodes before we even join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't, you know, support us on the Patreon. Money can be tight. We can totally get it. The completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because it gets us visibility out there in the internet ether.
1: Yeah, please do.
0: We need the money. I and mean, we don't get much money from you sharing, but
1: it helps out. Well, It might people might fucking join the Patreon. You never know. That's true. Or just, just the- I want I just want people to hear me. Nobody listens to me anymore.
0: <laughs> yes. I have to listen to him all the time. And I do it for absolute free. I don't even have to download anything. I just fucking pull up a zoom recording and he's there. Yeah. Begrudgingly. <laughs> Well, Adam, it's time now we did our picking for next week, which we do this every week on the show. At the end of the episode, we pick a good and a bad feature. We switch up on the quality of who has the two good choices the two bad choices we pick from for that. And basically, um, in this case, Adam has the two good choices, and I have the two bad choices for next week's episode. And we assign those numbers between 1 and 10. And the other person picks them between 1 and 10, and they're like, oh, I'm going to say number 7. And that's probably closest to the other person's number 6 pick, which ends up being the bad or good pick for, you know, whichever one of us has the choices there. And keep in mind, we do have the Godfather rule, where Adam and I still have a single veto in our back pocket we have to use by next May, uh, where if we hear one choice that someone ends up picking, like, oh, you pick number six, that's closest to number seven, which is this particular movie. The other person has the potential to say, actually, I'll take the cannoli, unless that choice is gone and that veto is used. We have to go with whatever other choice is available
1: it's a real good way to fuck each other.
0: Right. That's true. But we have, it's selective. It's, it's just like, it's a bullet in the chamber. One single bullet. We have to use it wisely. One bullet's
1: enough, baby. One bullet's
0: enough. Well, let's see if we'll end up using that for next week's topic, which, uh, you know, this was picked by our patrons over at patreon.com slash Uh, we decided, you know, there's this movie blonde coming out, the Marilyn Monroe movie, uh, starring Ina De Armas that is rated NC 17. The first example of that in quite a while. Uh, which is an interesting rating that has a lot of stigma attached to it. Uh, so our patrons voted for NC-17 movies as a topic, which is very curious, especially given, you know, NC-17 is sort of like a scarlet letter in the film world.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. NC-17 are unrated. If you go to the theater with that, you're fucked, basically.
0: Right, you can't really get much advertising, and even then you have a limited audience view, even more so than an R rating. There's a lot to mm-hmm. that. Right, yes. And uh, you have the two good choices for that. I have the two bad, so uh, we'll each uh, go ahead and pick a number between 1 and 10. So for your two good choices, Adam, I'm going to pick number
1: 8. All right, at number 8, on the dot. Uh, crazy, this movie is by a director that I'm just surprised we haven't talked about yet. Uh, it's a fucking wild ride of a movie, man, uh, but I really like it. I have William Friedkin's Killer Joe.
0: Oh, okay, I have seen Killer Joe. I, I remember digging Killer Joe, but it's been about a decade, so you know what, yeah, and especially a Friedkin, somehow we haven't covered a Friedkin, yeah, I'm definitely not taking the cannoli on that.
1: Hell yeah. And at number two, I have a movie that I actually just recently watched, surprised that it's a Lars von Trier movie that's, you know, unrated, but I have The House That Jack
0: Built. Oh, Yeah. Um, that's one I have not watched, uh, mainly because I'm just like, oh, a Lars von Trier serial killer movie, that's NC-17. Um, I need to be in the mood for that. There's some heavy shit in this movie, man. Well, are and you it- saying that a Lars von Trier movie is extremely depressing? Look at the human psyche?
1: Well, I could say this about the movie. It's either a masterpiece or the most pretentious shit that exists. I'm not sure.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, Time for you to pick between my two bad choices, Adam. So go ahead. Number between one and ten. Uh,
1: I'll go number
0: three. Number one. I have a movie I've been waiting to cover on the show for so long. Um, It's from a director we have covered before. Um, It has an infamous reputation to it. But goddamn, I can't wait to talk about it in full glorious detail. All laid bare. It's Showgirls, baby. Yeah.
1: Hashtag Nomi Malone for life. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can't take the cannoli on this. I mean, it's showgirls. Yeah. I, I, it's it's exactly the appropriate bad one
0: for NC-17. Hell yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, though on the other side of things, over at uh, number nine, I had one from uh, John Waters. most recent film uh, that apparently just uh, you know got the NC-17 and kind of ended his career. I guess I have a dirty shame. Never seen that one. Uh, I'm good with showgirls.
1: I'm not a big well, John Waters. I'm not a John Waters fan, I don't think. I tried. I, I I like John Waters as a personality. I'm not necessarily a fan of his films.
0: Uh, but Adam, we're missing out another Johnny Knoxville performance. But Dirty Shame, oh, it's a shame. Darn. Oh gosh. <laughs> it's darn darn indeed. But yeah, so alright. Killer Joe and Showgirls. A uh, Gina Grishaw double feature.
1: Hell yeah. Gina Gershon month.
0: Yeah, hell, September. <laughs> we did the Viola Davis episode was retroactively yeah. fucking like <laughs> Gina Grishon month. <laughs> hell yeah, hell yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we'll be talking about those two next time. But until then, uh, everybody, just watch out for those Daniel Kaluas out there. They're going to look at you weird and man, you don't want to be on the end of his fucking eyes. And there is no sixth borough. Tom Hanks lied. What?
1: I know, I'm sorry.
0: I can't believe Tom Hanks lied to me. He would never lie to me. (laughs)